From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall warns that China is developing a first-strike nuclear capability, including building an estimated 100 intercontinental ballistic missile silos. Kendall said the build-out may indicate a change in China's no-first-use policy, which means the country would only use nuclear weapons if fired upon. Some nuclear weapons experts question if China's intentions are to have first-strike capability. China has about 320 nuclear warheads, compared to about 5,500 in the U.S. stockpile. Breaking Defense reports that the Pentagon has spent $68 million for two new supercomputers it hopes will deliver products and services to the warfighter faster. The Defense Department's High Performance Computing Modernization Program says the military, as well as defense contractors, will use the platforms to model climate change and conduct computations for space science and acoustics, among other uses. The most common application will be computational fluid dynamics required for aircraft and ship design. A defense contractor has unveiled a drone it calls Cargo that can carry about 800 pounds and travel more than 500 nautical miles. Cayman Corporation says it has been testing a scaled-down model for the Marines and plans to demonstrate a full-scale model by the end of next year. The new drone is being developed for a program called Unmanned Logistics Systems Airborne, which will eventually be a family of aircraft in small, medium, and large sizes. The Marines said Cayman is using commercial off-the-shelf technology and fewer unique parts to reduce the cost of the vehicles. In preparation for great power competition with Russia and China, the U.S. Army is planning to retire its signature aircrafts like the Apache and Black Hawk and replace them with the next generation of helicopters. This new initiative is called Future Vertical Lift. Today is the first part of our series on Army modernization, sponsored in part by SAIC, CACI, and General Dynamics. Joining me is Major General Walter Rugen. He is director of the U.S. Army's Future Vertical Lift cross-functional team and Brigadier General Robert Berry. He is program executive officer of aviation at the U.S. Army. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. General Rugen, I want to start with you. Why do we need this program? What's wrong with the helicopters we have right now? Well, the, uh, the helicopter we have right now originally were designed in the 1960s in an analog era, and we really need to uh, get it into the digital age with our fleets. Uh, we're running out of size, weight, and power uh, capabilities within the footprint of our current fleet. But more importantly, too, is we need to be able to transform uh, the future battlefield geometry. And what I mean by that is both physical, you know, you've seen that with our advanced rotorcraft configurations, we can go faster and farther, but it's also in the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, we want to go faster and farther and uh, temporally, you know, this, this ability to uh, crank up the tempo against any adversary is very, very important. And uh, we're looking across that to transform Army aviation to fight uh, peer and near peer threats. And General, will they only be used against great powers or will they also be used for counterinsurgency, counterterrorism? Well, that's the great thing, you know, really about vertical lift is it's uh, flexible across the spectrum of conflict. We ho always have been the force of choice 
no matter if it was a great power competition, large scale combat op, or uh, anything from uh, you know helping in a disaster relief. Uh, in that entire spectrum, vertical lift, because we're not tied to a runway or a ship port, we remain you know the COCOM commander's flexible choice to to take care of multiple missions. And how will these new aircraft be transformational to Army aviation? You know, we've we've flown some advanced rotorcraft configurations, uh, and and we're very much into prototyping and fly before we buy. Uh, these advanced uh, configurations are giving us transformational speed and range, and we want that speed and range to be able to operate in our pacing theater, which is Indo-PACOM. I mean, we need that what we call reach, the the ability to reach and bring effects uh, at the long distances of of Indo-PACOM, but we also want decision dominance. And that decision dominance will allow us to find and fix, you know, things that are hunting us or our pacing threats uh, or high payoff threats and, and finish them. But more importantly, we want, you know, low latency at that X, at that uh, strike um, uh, environment and, and be able to, again, very quickly either exploit that success or uh, reattack if we weren't successful on our first uh, strike or assault. And General Barry, I want to ask you about um, pilot training. How extensive will that training be? Are these new aircraft much more difficult to fly than the ones they're replacing? Certainly, yeah. Along the way, we have been developing since the initiation of these requirements uh, ways that will transform not just our uh, the capabilities that General Rugen had mentioned, but also how we train our aviators. And a critical portion of that, as you mentioned, is the pilot training. But I would, uh, I'd be quick to say it's not just the pilot training. We're looking comprehensively across the way we maintain our platform, the way we track data and use data, uh, as well as how we do the pilot training. And in all cases, I think specifically you had asked, is it going to be more challenging? We see technology enabling us uh, to train in a significantly more relevant environment and to bring to bear all of these technologies to better align our pilot training with our maintainer training and then connect data across the spectrum. Um, so we believe, uh, although we will be operating in new environments with new capabilities, that technology that we can bring to bear will help again across the spectrum of training uh, as we bring these new capabilities to the Army. And General Barry, just staying with you, you know, there's ever tightening budgets. Are you facing difficult decisions on how to fund and maintain these new aircraft? So that's always going to be a challenge. Uh, I would say here inside Program Executive Office Aviation, uh, we work across the enterprise uh, in making sure that as we design, develop, deliver, and then support these systems, that we do so with an understanding of affordability. It's at the it's at the forefront of every decision that we make. And we have three objectives here inside the program executive office. The first is delivering on those future vertical lift capabilities, the ones that General Rugen mentioned. Uh, and no doubt our top priority for all of our workforce here in PU Aviation is accomplishing delivery uh, of those systems for our future fleet. Uh, the next is on our enduring fleet of aircraft, the fleet that are that we have in existence today, maintaining readiness and relevance of that fleet. And then the third is while we're doing that in both future development, as well as maintaining our enduring fleet, that we uh, build partner capacity around the world. So those three objectives 
all uh, affordability at the center of what we do. So it's a fair question. It's something that inside the aviation enterprise we consider every day and in every decision we make uh, is affordability and how we're going to maintain those three objectives across the enterprise uh, while we uh, modernize. All right. Well, gentlemen, we're going to take just a quick pause right here, but we'll come back. Up next, more of my conversation with the Army on modernizing their helicopter fleet. I'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm speaking with the director of the U.S. Army's Future Vertical Lift Cross-Functional Team, Major General Walter Rugen, and the Army's Program Executive Officer of Aviation, Brigadier General Robert Barry. Um, General Barry, before the break, you'd mentioned building partner capacity. Can you drill down a little bit on that and what that really means? Certainly, yeah. So uh, partner capacity we look at as our uh, friends and allies around the world who we share common values with. Um, we look as we build capability uh, to find ways that maintain interoperability with our international partners and allies uh, to bring them along with us and to uh, ensure that they have the ability to procure and then field systems uh, that we have inside our formation. An objective there, obviously, is in a uh, future battlefield to ensure that we're able to communicate and execute our missions in a comprehensive way. And we have an ancillary benefit of uh, inside our industrial base, uh, increasing the volume of systems as we procure them to have our international partners doing that with us. So it's something we are dedicated to. We do that in conjunction with General Rugen and the Future Vertical Lift cross-functional team on our future fleet, as well as all of our systems in the enduring fleet. So it's something that's intricately tied into all of our, our missions that we execute inside the program executive office. And General Rugen, what are some of the challenges that you have faced and are facing currently with the Future Vertical Lift program? No, great question. And, and I think we started off um, uh, really looking back to what we saw coming out of the, the Crimea and the Donbass in 2014. And we saw a number of things that the Russians did to uh, Ukraine, and we saw a number of gaps and we wanted to close those gaps for any future force. Uh, and we've been studying it uh, very in-depth since that 2014 event in the Crimea, and that's really what woke us up. I think uh, as we talked about the capability we need to fight and win, um, everything that we've done has been focused on closing those gaps. And so uh, multiple studies that fed into uh, uh, prototyping, that fed into our modeling and sim, We've done over 100,000 engineered runs in a high-fidelity physics-based model to fight the fight over and over and over to ensure that what we're building is actually going to be effective uh, in our pacing theaters against uh, these peer threats. And I think once we got finished with that, we took it out to our Western test ranges. We've been out there for three years in a row to fly uh, in relevant environments against these threats and make sure that, uh, again, what we were putting in our requirements document is something that's going to be very effective in the fight. And we'll be heading out to Project Convergence 21, both at White Sands Missile Range and at Yuma Proving Ground uh, this October and November to follow up on the work we just uh, finished up in May at Dugway, again, against live threat emitters. 
you know, we very much want to fly before we buy, and we're mindful of our past programmatic uh, and acquisition failures. And so, this prototyping effort is is uh, very very central to what uh, the Army wants to do and what Army Aviation wants to do. I think uh, you were right to ask the question earlier about budgets. Um, I would uh, state that we've we've studied our budget in the tail, our our operational and sustainment costs. Uh, well over 25 times with external organizations to get a good red team to make sure that we don't uh, grab a hold of a capability that the Army can't afford. And to date, uh, we've done the requirement trades to make sure that we we maintain uh, our budgets and we, we maintain something that is affordable but also effective. Uh, I think, again, when you look at uh, the inflection point we're at currently, we are much more like the 1970s in Army aviation coming out of Vietnam, where our current fleets are modernized, uh, than we were in the 1990s coming out of Desert Storm. And so uh, we have a very much leaner and cleaner portfolio. We're buying out the Apache Echo model. We're buying out the Mike model Blackhawk this uh, decade. And that inflection point allows us to jump to the future. And so it gives us that uh, budgetary headspace and that's just not me or the Army saying that, but the Congressional Budget Office uh, saw that and said the same thing, is that we're at a very great inflection point to jump to the future. And General and Barry, at, uh, sorry, sorry, General, to cut you off, but I, I wanted to ask General Barry about timelines. When will the first aircraft be deployed to the battlefield? And are you confident that you can get them there on time? We are, yeah. I think uh, I want to just tag on to what General Rubin was saying about the upfront portion. In, in many cases, uh, the things we are doing early in the program are going to help us avoid many of the pitfalls we've had uh, on developmental programs in the past. And specifically, that's making sure that the requirements in the upfront portion of the program both satisfy a capability that the Army needs and are also achievable from an industry's perspective. So these multiple iterations that we're doing, both through demonstrations as well as actual development of prototypes and flying before we buy, as General Rubin mentioned, that's going to enable some of these aggressive timelines that we are uh, still attempting to achieve. And to specifically answer your question, uh, by the end of the next, uh, by the end of this decade, right, by the 2030, we are going to build these platforms, these future vertical lift capabilities, and in some cases, well before that, on the unmanned side, uh, begin to get these in soldiers' hands and and shape this capability, this desired future capability that the Army has. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us and, and sharing that with us. Thanks. Thank you. Our Army Modernization Series is sponsored in part by SAIC, CACI, and General Dynamics. Up next, the Defense Department finding new ways to manage its money. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Pentagon is dealing with uncertainty surrounding its fiscal 2022 budget. I'll be right back. The Defense Department has operated on a continuing resolution, or CR, for 11 out of the last 12 fiscal years. A CR essentially freezes spending at the previous year's level. The Government Accountability Office studied the impact that operating under a CR has on DOD. Elizabeth Field is Director for Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the GAO. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for having me. So is the bottom line here that operating under a CR is not that big of a deal for the Pentagon? 
Well, it's certainly not an ideal or particularly efficient way to operate, but I think the bottom line here is that because there have been so many CRs, and in fact, out of the last 45 years, fiscal years, there have only been three that have not had at least one continuing resolution, the department has figured out how to manage during them. So how does the department manage with a CR? Well, there are a few ways. Uh, one would be setting spending plans uh, early on, before the beginning of a fiscal year, taking different scenarios into account. So what if there's a 30-day CR or a 60-day or a 90-day CR? How are we going to allocate whatever funding we do get during that time? So that is one way. Um, another is to change the timing of contracts. So uh, the Navy Fleet Forces Command, for example, has said to all of its uh, supporting uh, components that they want their service contracts that are year-long to start in the second quarter of a fiscal year so that there's no disruption in service. So a continuing resolution um, prohibits the department from spending on new defense programs. So what kind of impact does that have? Well, you're absolutely right. And when we spoke to defense officials during our review, this was one of the concerns that they identified as being a, a, the biggest challenge for them, uh, particularly when it came to procurement of, of big ticket items of things like tanks and, and what, what are called uh, major acquisition programs. But I have to tell you that what we did for our review is we went and we looked at all of these sort of, they're called acquisition reports uh, for the four years, fiscal years that we reviewed. Uh, there were 45 uh, that we found. Only seven of them referred to a CR as a problem for that acquisition program. We followed up with defen defense officials after the fiscal year that that report alluded to, and none of the effects uh, on procurement that they predicted had actually come true. So one of the uh, years recently was fiscal year 2019. I don't know how that got, how that made it through. <laughs> a small miracle. That was not a CR. So right. tell me about that year. How did the Pentagon operate? Yeah, so it was really helpful for our review to have that year because, as, as you know, as you pointed out, it's very unusual for there not to be a continuing resolution, but there was not one in fiscal year 2019. And so we compared spending patterns at the department for that year compared to the other years when there was a CR. Uh, and what we found is that the department did obligate more funding uh, in fiscal year 19 in that first quarter than it typically would uh, under in other fiscal years. So for example, the Marine Corps in fiscal year 2018 spent about 18% of its procurement funding in the first quarter. In fiscal year 19, it spent 40% of its procurement funding in that first quarter. So what about the, the rush at the end of the fiscal year to obligate the funds that, that needs to be obligated? Does a CR impact that at all? Not really. It's, that was not one of the concerns that department officials identified for us. Certainly, you know, those of us in government are familiar with that uh, spending frenzy, but it's really not tied to a CR, at least based on what we learned. What about hiring for Defense Department civilians? Does a CR impact that? Are you not allowed to hire you know, while you're operating under a continuing resolution? So generally the department can hire during a continuing resolution, although there might be some restrictions on that. Uh, and we looked at hiring patterns, hiring data to try to get a sense of how a CR might affect the department's civilian hiring. And we sort of found a mixed bag. On the one hand, we found that spending is a little bit lower on average during a CR, about uh, 200 civilian personnel per day under a CR compared to 250 uh, uh, not during a CR. 
but department officials also told us that hiring fluctuates throughout the year and there can be reasons for that that have nothing to do with the CR. For example, uh, the Army Medical Command told us that they have a lot of uh, spouses, that they hire military spouses, and so they see a lot of turnover in the summer because service members get their permanent change of station orders and they're moving. What about military personnel? Does it affect them at all? Or are they kind of on a separate track? They're really on a separate track. It's not one of the concerns that department officials identified for us. So a CR is looking likely. <laughs> One doesn't Indeed. know what's going to happen. We're coming up on the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. What do you think um, Department of Defense uh, leaders are doing now to prepare for that? Or are they just going to assume this is what's going to happen? Let's just go with it. Well, department officials, because of how common a CR is, always assume that there will be a continuing resolution. So they've already got their spending plans in place, the, the 30, 60, 90 day plans I talked about earlier. Um, they also are preparing what are called anomaly requests to the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. These are things that they feel they really are going to need to get funding for that normally they wouldn't be able to, to fund under a CR. And they can get exceptions. They submit those to OMB. OMB decides which ones uh, are sufficient, uh, sufficiently supported uh, to go to Congress, and then Congress decides which ones to fund. So it sounds like you found out that they are handicapped by this, but that they've gotten so used to that handicap that they've been able to manage and work around it. That's exactly right. It's business as usual, and they have adapted. All right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to that GAO report at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates and behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.